Three countries in the Andes went to the polls on April 11th. Citizens from Ecuador, Peru and Bolivia voted for candidates at the presidential, congressional and municipal levels. Results in Bolivia are yet to be determined. So this week we will concentrate on what the ballot tells us in Peru and Ecuador. And while political conditions differ between these countries, there are similar elements uniting both electoral cycles namely voter distrust and the prospect of future instability. My name is Gustavo Ribeiro. I'm the editor-in-chief of the Brazilian Report. This is Explaining Brazil. If you've had the chance to look at our website recently, you'll see that uh, it has a new fresh face with more features and a more reader-friendly experience. And we also have new products fresh out of the oven, like the Latin America Weekly Newsletter. Every Wednesday, Lucas Berti and Natalia Scalzareto break down the most pressing issues happening everywhere between Rio Grande and Cape Horn. This newsletter will be for premium subscribers only, but we are offering a big fat discount for you to become a member or for you to upgrade your existing account from light or standard to premium. Just go to brazilian.report slash subscribe and use the promo code NEWTBR40 with no spaces and the 40 is written in numbers. So that makes NEWTBR the number four and then the number zero, no spaces. This week, Explaining Brazil gives you something of an appetizer for the Latin America Weekly Newsletter. And to do that, we welcome back Lucas Berti, who covers Latin America for the Brazilian Report. Lucas, thanks for joining us. Hi, Gustavo. So, Lucas, Peru and Ecuador, where should we start? Well, let's go with Ecuador first, because that's where the election is settled. Okay, so what happened there? So conservative businessman Guillermo Lasso beat out leftist favorite Andres Arauz in the runoff election and will be the next president of Ecuador. With over 98% of votes counted, Lasso held a lead of about four points. Hmm, so quite an upset, right? Because Lasso almost didn't even make it to the second round. Yeah, you are right. The first round happened in February and Andres Arauz finished with almost one-third of the votes. It looked like he was the clear-cut favorite to beat whoever came up against him in the runoff. And the dispute for second place went down to the wire. Guillermo Lasso and the indigenous leader Yaku Perez were neck and neck and the difference between the two ended up being around two dozen thousand votes. So how does Lasso go from barely qualifying for the runoff to winning everything? Well, to explain that, we have to go back in time a little and talk about Rafael Correa, who is Andres Arau's political godfather. Elected president in 2007, Correa was part of South America's so-called Pink Tide when left-wing and center-left leaders scored big election wins across the continent. Benefiting from an once-in-a-lifetime commodities boom, these leaders beefed up social policies, oversaw a massive reduction of poverty and unemployment rates, and in some cases became larger-than-life figures with massive followings. My sueño, with all humility, is to see a country in misery, without children in the street, 
una patria sin opulencia, pero digna y feliz. Arauz was a member of the Correa cabinet during his last two years in office. As was the case with many of his contemporaries, Correa left office in 2017 with massive approval ratings, after lifting 1.3 million people out of poverty. And his popularity allowed him to elect his successor, current president Lenin Moreno. And how did that go? Well, Correa's plan for an interrupted hegemony backfired, and the two men became bitter rivals. The former president faced grave charges, he fled to Belgium, was tried in absentia, and accused Lenin Moreno of betrayal and lawfare. His name was even on Interpol's red notice of fugitives. He also removed the legal protections Correa had granted to WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, which at the time had been a major middle finger to the US. Right, so the Arauz candidacy was in many ways a referendum on Correa. In some ways, yes, he still commands a lot of power and prestige, even in exile, which explains why Arauz performed so well in the first round. But other issues also played a major role in the campaign. Like what? Well, for starters, the economy. The Moreno years were marked by capital flight, recession, and decreasing economic activity. According to the World Bank, Ecuador's GDP growth rate dropped from 2.3% in 2017 to just 0.05% two years later. So things were bad well before the pandemic. Very bad, actually. In 2019, the country erupted in riots after the government canceled state subsidies on fuel prices to fulfill requests for austerity measures by the International Monetary Fund in exchange for a $10 billion loan, which represents roughly 4% of the Ecuadorian GDP. So once the pandemic hit Ecuador, what happens? The country quickly became one of the world's biggest coronavirus hotbeds. In the port city of Guayaquil, the second largest in the country, we saw harrowing scenes as authorities struggled to deal with a massive amount of COVID-19 deaths. A shortage of graves meant dozens of corpses were simply abandoned on the city streets. Jesus. All this meant Lenin Moreno, the outgoing president, was left with approval ratings of single digits. And he didn't even try to get re-elected, which shows just how bad things got. It does, yes. So, Lucas, this was Guillermo Lasso's third attempt to win the presidency. What did he have to say that persuaded Ecuadorians this time around? I mean, what is his plan to lift the country? Well, Lasso is a businessman and a proper pro-market conservative. He promises to break with Ecuador's left-leaning economics and create 2 million jobs through tax cuts, but without major austerity measures. As a matter of fact, Lasso's 2021 platform is largely a rehashed version of his 2013 campaign, when he finished second to Rafael Correa. And just like Bolsonaro did in 2018, Lasso used Venezuela for a fear-mongering, saying his leftist adversary would push Ecuador towards socialism and therefore towards the same kind of collapse Venezuela has experienced. 
And besides the economy, is there anything else which plays into the equation of this 2021 election? Well, Lasso is reviving the desire in Ecuador to crack down on violent crime. Now, while public security was not at the forefront of the campaign, it is an issue that strikes a chord with voters in Ecuador, who see criminality worsening. He promises zero impunity for crime and an iron fist for murderers and rapists, and a hard line on prosecuting drug trafficking and possession. It's 90s rhetoric all over again, and the problem is that this tough-on-crime stance, which is reminiscent of Brazil's Jair Bolsonaro, has proven to be ineffective in the past. But as people fear for their lives, they are more likely to be seduced by promises of clamping down gangs. So anti-socialism and tough on crime, that's the long and short of it? More or less, though there is another ingredient that may have tipped the vote. As we said before, Guillermo Lasso fought tooth and nail for a runoff spot with Yaku Pérez, an indigenous leader. Now Pérez was ahead and Lasso only overtook him in the vote at the last minute, which led to accusations of fraud and a call for a boycott of the second round. Voting is mandatory in Ecuador, so Pérez told his supporters to spoil their ballots. The remaining candidates intended to bolster the economy through mining, something the indigenous population is dead against. So Pérez was able to frame both Lasso and Arauz as opponents, despite their differences. Now, the indigenous vote in Ecuador makes up around 10% of the total, so they may have decided a race separated by only four points. Indeed, so is there any chance of some sort of conservative alliance between Brazil and Ecuador now that Lasso won there? Probably. Let's remember that Bolsonaro was one of the last major heads of state to recognize Joe Biden's win in the US. But he quickly congratulated Lasso and talked about strengthening bonds between the two nations. But as we are covering here at the Brazilian Report, Bolsonaro has a handful in domestic politics. So it's unclear how much attention to foreign policy he will pay. After the break... We walked down the Andes to discuss the Peruvian election, which transported us right back to the 90s. We'll be right back. As you know, The Brazilian Report is an independent news outlet that lives off subscriptions, so you can support our independence by choosing one of our plans for the best content about Brazil in English. And if you have already subscribed, then you can also buy us a coffee with a small donation starting at $4 and going up to whatever your budget and your heart allows, you can help us refill our coffee mugs to continue covering Brazil. Just go to buymeacoffee.com slash Brazilian Report. Buymeacoffee.com slash Brazilian Report. We're back with Lucas Berti, our Latin America correspondent at the Brazilian Report. Lucas, what the hell happened in Peru? Well, that's what everyone following the election wanted to understand on Monday. The election field was absolutely packed with 18 presidential hopefuls. Wow. 
And there's more. In the week leading up to the vote, no one was polling above 10%, according to Ipsos, with five candidates tied for two spots in the runoff. Hmm, so which two of them got in? Well, the winner on Sundays wasn't even in the top five. Far-left militant Pedro Castillo won 19% of valid votes, despite polling in the sixth place originally. And he will square off against Keiko Fujimori, a former lawmaker who was arrested for corruption and is currently out on bail. She is also the daughter of former dictator Alberto Fujimori, who ruled Peru with an iron fist in the 90s. She got just over 13% of votes, barely enough to beat libertarian economist Hernando de Soto, a former central banker. Right, I see. Hmm. I mean, polls were very volatile, and in a place with such high levels of voters' disinterest, mistakes are very likely. Candidates tipped as frontrunners such as Yoni Lescano and George Forsyth didn't even make the top three. It's worth remembering that Peru has seen president after president being involved in corruption scandals. In November last year, the country had three different presidents in the space of a week. Also, partisan structure in Peru is, by all counts, flimsy. Party systems are a key tool for accountability in a representative democracy. In Peru, that is a virtually non-existent. Political parties constantly change their names to the point that their ideology or nominal political stances become completely meaningless, while others are created and fought a few years later. Not to mention that most lawmakers are involved in corruption. That sounds a bit too familiar for Brazilians. So, Lucas, who is Pedro Castillo? You told me before uh, we scripted this podcast that several Peruvian websites didn't even have any pictures of him when announcing his win at the weekend. Yeah, so he's the darkest of dark horses. Pedro Castillo is a school teacher and union leader who has led numerous strikes. In a country like Peru, someone with anti-establishment rhetoric has a lot of room to grow. But he's accused of having ties with the Shining Path, the Maoist insurgency group that engaged in terrorism and struck fear into the hearts of Peruvians during the 80s and the 90s. And as the country tried to hold elections in 1980, it turned to sabotage, burning ballot boxes, and it slowly morphed from an ideological struggle into an armed guerrilla group. Its leaders were even sentenced to life in prison. Castillo has denied this allegation as below the waistline falsehoods. And to his point, he was a member of a local organization which fought the Shining Path, so... Right, and it is quite interesting that a man accused of being a member of the Shining Path will fight for the Peruvian presidency with a member of the Fujimori family of all people. Yeah, it's a total throwback. When Alberto Fujimori first stood as a presidential candidate in Peru in 1990, he was thought as an outsider and received little attention at first. After all, he was just an unknown dean of an agricultural university, who became notable for driving a tractor to a campaign rally. His opponent was none other than future Nobel Prize winning author Mario Vargas Llosa, who wanted to implement chapteride reforms in Peru. 
Tenemos un programa de privatización que es muy ambicioso y al mismo tiempo de una transparencia absolutamente acrisolada. It was Fujimori's promise to crush the shining path and his rhetoric against the rich, white elites that struck a chord with the electorate, which is mostly poor and multiracial. At that time, many people thought the Shining Path were on the verge of taking power in Peru. Bernard Aronson, who was United States Assistant Secretary of State for Inter-American Affairs, compared the Maoist organization to Hitler and to Cambodia's Pol Pot. He even said that if the Shining Path were to reach power, we would have witnessed the century's third genocide. So that was the level of fear in Peru. Yes, but the group was handicapped in 1992 when police forces arrested its top man, Abimael Guzman. Other members of the group were later apprehended. That gave momentum for Fujimori to bulldoze the Congress and remain power for 10 years, only living at the turn of the century after multiple scandals. Right. But Lucas, uh, Fujimori won because people feared the genocide by the Shining Path. But Fujimori committed his own fair share of human rights abuses, right? He was convicted for his involvement in the killings and kidnappings carried out by an anti-communist death squad, not to mention massive forced sterilization programs. Yeah, and that case has only reached the trial phase now. Fujimori's so-called family planning policy was actually a covert operation to coerce poor indigenous women to being sterilized. As revealed in documents published in 2002, the regime was saw controlling birth rates as a way to fight quote resource depletion and economic downturn. More than a quarter of a million women were hit by a policy which many experts call a genocide. So why are the Fujimodis still strong despite the multiple corruption scandals and the human rights abuses? Well, for millions, the patriarch's role in crushing terrorism and recovering the country from a massive crisis in the 80s earned them support. Hmm, so, it is interesting that Peru is now among two extremes. A far-left leader which has been associated with a terrorist organization and the daughter of a brutal far-right dictator. Full circle. Full circle, indeed. So, Lucas, what should we expect from the runoff? Well, it's too hard to tell. When, on one side, Keiko Fujimori has massive rejection rates, but the association between Pedro Castillo and the Shining Path could refrain many people from voting for him. I talked to experts in Peruvian politics just before the vote, and one of them told me that she only saw a path of victory for Keiko Fujimori if she was facing Pedro Castillo, but she added that this scenario was too improbable to happen an opinion most, if not all, observers agreed upon. Gotcha, yeah. So which kind of country will the winner inherit, whoever that person is? This is a country with one of the world's highest rates of COVID-19 deaths per capita and where the GDP crash in 2020 reached double digits. So it's going to be rough for whoever wins. Moreover, the 130-seat unicameral Congress will be split which will keep the presidential on shaky ground. The Peruvian constitution gives Congress plenty of leeway to oust its presidents. Instead of an impeachment per se, heads of state can be removed from office if they are judged morally unfit 
by a single two-thirds majority vote. In a recent story shows that they are not afraid to use their powers. Plus, markets don't trust neither Fujimori nor Castillo, so it's going to be tough to get investment from now on. Yes, the new president in Peru will be in a precarious position. Lucas, thank you very much for your insights. Thank you, Gustavo. I invite you to read the Latin America weekly newsletter, which comes out every Wednesday. You can take a peek for free if you sign up for our free trials for seven days. Plus, you can take a look at the rest of our content without the need to insert credit card details whatsoever. And if you like explaining Brazil, please rate us with five stars. That will help more people find out about this show. Or you can sign up to the Brazilian Report, the journalistic engine behind this podcast. I'm Gustavo Ribeiro. Thanks for listening.